honestly, it's sort of like sticking around until your moment happens. And I, that's what kind of happened to us. Right place, right time, knowing how to pivot, being ready to pivot, willing to risk it. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I'm your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the pleasure of speaking with Kate Volzer, who is the co-founder and CEO of Wiser. Wiser is an education technology company that specializes in building affinity between prospective students and colleges. And in March of 2021, EAB, which is a key player in the education industry, announced its acquisition of Wiser in a move to further EAB's efforts to help schools and students find, learn about, and interact with each other. Wiser, which Kate had co-founded back in 2016, has grown rapidly since the company began, building private online communities for colleges that enable students to connect with peers and campus leaders. Prospective students use the platforms to get a sense of what life is like at a given school and to find friends and mentors with similar interests. And the technology also enables faculty to offer guidance on majors and classes while giving institutions a direct channel for delivering personalized content to interested students. I loved learning about Kate's reflections on transitioning post-acquisition to EAB and working through all the challenges she encountered taking Wiser from an idea to an exit. I hope you all enjoy my conversation with Kate Bolzer. I was thinking about the best place to start this conversation, and I got excited because most everyone that we've had on to share their own entrepreneurial stories are very much captured by the startup and scale up life cycle stages of company growth. Whereas you have this perspective on the post acquisition stage of your journey. (laughs) And so I'd love to kind of start at the end, if you will, in the present moment and then loop our way back around, but kind of reflecting on the totality of, of your journey here, you know, what have been the most salient takeaways from having your company acquired you know, thinking about the mission that you set out on and, and the vision that, that you still have. So EAB, who acquired us, was the biggest company that I thought might acquire us when I made our first pitch deck. So it's wow. kind of cool to see. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, like, I should go back and try and find that original deck. But I remember they had just done a, a six-figure acquisition, high six-figure acquisition of another company, which interestingly, we're now in that division of the, basically in this like marketing, tech-enabled marketing services division for enrollment. And at the time we were doing something in alumni and career, I was like, well, it's probably a big leap to get over there to where it would make sense. But they're a big enough player in higher ed where I could see it happening someday. And so it's totally surreal. And regularly I wake up and I'm just like, I can't believe it worked and I can't believe it happened. (laughs) But then as I'm, and I'm only, I think three months, four months out, I think from acquisition, but I've finally gotten myself to a point where I'm not obsessed anymore with Wiser. I still care deeply about education and and making education a better place. But um, like this morning, I had a coffee. I worked out for an hour. I didn't really obsess over what was happening in my email inbox. And, you know, we had to reschedule this because I've been (laughs) 
a little <laughs> negligent when it comes to email, but it feels really, really good uh, to take a second to just after it was only five years, it wasn't that long, but like a five years of just constant, you know, when you're the only person at the beginning of the company, it's if you aren't doing something, the thing isn't moving forward. And it's super nice to be in a place where now we're a part of a big company where if I take time off or need to take time off, want to take time off, it doesn't stop. And it's really cool to be in that sort of environment now. So it wasn't like this um, really <laughs> after acquisition. I was still, I think, running like a zillion miles a minute. And I'm not a runner. But my boss's boss was like, you need to sort of like you need to chill out <laughs> and embrace <laughs> it a little bit and slow down. And so I mourned, sort of mourned the loss of Wiser, knowing that I wouldn't be in the driver's seat anymore. And that was before we signed the red line. And then, or, you know, before I signed the letter of intent. And then immediately after signing, there's this like excitement, right? Because it's a major transaction. You're working on it. There's lots of press. And then afterwards, there's this whole integration period where there is a transition. Um, I mean, you sort of have to slow down to speed up. And we're still in the slowing down to speed up phase, I think, of Wiser inside of EAB. But then the personal side of it is it I actually hired a morning coach to help me figure out what to do outside of work hours because it was always wake up and immediately check my email, immediately start working. And maybe I would work out, probably not. Best case, I'd make a, a pour over and that was my morning time for me, but it's totally different. So I feel really great. And I'm you know planning some trips. We're doing our exit trip to California, the founders, the Wiser founders. We actually leave Friday and oh, very nice. Napa all next week. <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted. <laughs> I like really wanted to be able to go and just buy a bunch of wine. And that was the like one thing outside. <laughs> like getting it, maybe it sounds silly. I don't know, but that was my No, thing. no, that, like, that's a fantastic. Wine, really like luxurious wine trip. <laughs> I'm excited. You get to, you get to do that and, and celebrate. Well, now I sound like a jerk though. <laughs> no, well, it, we could go through, you know, the. But every entrepreneur has their thing that they want to do, right? Like right. you must have your thing that you want to do. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm spending a lot of time on on my own company right now, but mm -hmm. I mean, it it has to take a lot of prescience, foresight to kind of call out the you know EAB as an acquirer as you're starting the company in in some way. Well, I mean, education is a large; it's a known marketplace, and EAB was the largest and still is like the largest private equity backed company. So, thank you for thinking that. But that's the hard thing about education; it's a big, small uh, market. Where if you don't get acquired by a certain few, then you need to grow big enough to grow outside of the education landscape. So let, let's dive into to Wiser and the story and and catching up to to the present moment and trips to Napa and <laughs> all the all the fun stuff. <laughs> Call me next Wednesday. <laughs> so where where does your interest in in entrepreneurship stem from? Yeah, so um, I was born in Northeast Ohio between Akron and Canton, and I grew up, this matters, I grew up on eight and a half acres of land, cornfield, cornfield, woods, neighbor around me. I think I'm third generation entrepreneur, but brick and mortar, you know, like very blue collar. So my dad's family had an office supply shop, and I always heard about Bear's office supply in Canton. And then my mom, her family didn't have a whole lot of money. So she went, when she was in high school, she went to cosmetology school and got her hair license and started 
And she started working at 18, opened her first salon at 21. I think she was maybe 28-ish or 30-ish when she had me. And I had a couple brothers too. But growing up, she always took me to the salon, had me check people out, count the deposits. I loved counting the deposits. Um, <laughs> and she just was always teaching I don't know that she was doing it intentionally. Maybe she was, but like management skills, like general operations of business. When it was, when she would get a call, sometimes you'd have to leave something to go fix something at the salon. And now she employs like 50 or so women. But I just remember growing up and watching her and thinking, man, I really want to do something like that when I grow up. And I was obsessed with inventing something when I was, you know, in, I wanted to make money. And I was obsessed with inventing things between like eight and I don't know, 15. And I remember being very young, sitting at the end of my parents' driveway, trying to like, I wanted to go into business. And I was convinced that in order to do that, I needed to have golf clubs. And I didn't have enough money (laughs) saved up. I'm not kidding. I remember sitting at the end of the driveway, trying to sell like lemonade to buy my first set of golf clubs. I negotiated with my mom. She would pay 50% of the golf clubs if I could get the match. And there was no traffic. And I was like, my God, wouldn't it be easier if I could just invent something awesome like the light bulb? <laughs> so I remember sitting out there. Eventually, she took me to the, it's like, it's the flea market in Hartville, like a, a giant marketplace, giant garage sale. I loved going there because you could always wheel and deal. But I sold all of my beanie babies and knew the value mm. of them. Got my mom to match to get my golf clubs. And then I guess, then I did business. And so I think from, I just like that. <laughs> I just always wanted to build something. I've always liked being in the driver's seat. I've always liked negotiating. I love making deals and it's fun and energizing for me, even when it's hard. Yeah. So you got, you got your golf clubs, mm-hmm. as, you know, the, the mark of any, <laughs> that's good. It, yeah. I, I, it's uh, I respect that. So and like pretty it good. Requires it requires a deal it's of really patience. sloppy at hole 11. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty good for like three holes. <laughs> As long as you're having fun. Yeah. So, you know, kind of cultivating that entrepreneurial mindset, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, fast forwarding a, a bit to the, the point of, you know, ideation for, for Wiser. Mm-hmm. Where, where does that idea come from? So the arc, neither of my parents went to college. I played volleyball in high school and I did play golf for a hot minute, but it didn't, <laughs> didn't continue. I was better at volleyball. <laughs> Um, So I got recruited to go play at the University of Chicago. And there I was in school with a lot of people from extremely elite backgrounds and like hyper connected who could phone a friend and get an internship super easily. My first job out of undergrad was working for the admissions office. So I started to learn higher ed. I worked there for five years climbed pretty quickly through the ranks and then was told I needed to either have an advanced degree or spend more time in a role before I could move up another level. And I'm a list checker offer. And so I was like, okay, fine, I'll go. I went back to school and I got my MBA at Chicago Booth. I started studying entrepreneurship there and was like, oh my gosh, so this is the thing that I I just didn't really until then. I mean, this is like Facebook had just made it so that everybody could log in, I think my sophomore year of college. And so the, this was the beginning of I think like the beginning of kind of the normalization of entrepreneurship and tech entrepreneurship. So when I was in business school, I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. But I also had a mentor that did private wealth management and I was sort of studying finance. And I had it in my head that I wanted to go work at Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan. And I did 
I mean, like somewhere around like 30 or so coffee chats per firm and eventually got offered a job at JP Morgan. But like, my God, wouldn't it have been a lot easier to just be able to call somebody versus like network and then talk to the next person? And I enjoy networking. Don't get me wrong. But it was like a lot, a lot of work to finally get to the point where I was connected enough where I could advocate for myself. So I thought, why the heck isn't there a piece of software? Like if I'm paying this much to go to Booth, if I'm paying this much to go to the University of Chicago, shouldn't I be able to access my alumni network a lot easier? And so that was the idea for Wiser. But that didn't surface until, so I had, I created a company sort of, I don't know if you would, I mean, I tried to start something. It had a name, Mm -hmm. Um, Visit Coordinator, uh, which was all about scheduling these visits for college admissions counselors from universities come to visit high schools in the fall to recruit kids to apply. So that whole process, there was a whole back and forth scheduling. The short version of the story is it's a feature, not a product. And during that, I quickly realized that, wow, I just like team really mattered. And there was so much that I didn't know about running a company and so much that I didn't know that I didn't know. (laughs) So before jumping in to start another thing, I knew that I wanted to come back close to home. And I'm, uh, you know, being close to family mattered to me a lot. And everybody was like, you're crazy for wanting to move to Cleveland. I'm like, well, you know what? I don't know anyone in San Francisco and I really don't like Manhattan. I like visiting. I'll go to Broadway shows and do the touristy stuff, but not, not my vibe. I'm a Midwesterner at heart. And I wanted, I was missing a lot of holidays and birthday parties and just everything. I wanted to come home. So chose to come home, but I wasn't going to just jump into anything. I really wanted to find, well, figure out if there were startups here. Cause it was like, I'm convinced someday that I'm going to start a company. I just need to like find the right people to start a company with who know more than me so that I don't do what I did with visit coordinator again. And I networked all day at this event. Um, I guess it was a startup networking event. And eventually I mm-hmm. met John Knifik, who at the time was the CEO I know that people can't see it, but for dramatic effect, I actually have the notebook and I keep it here. Um, This is like proof of life here, but I have the notes from when I came, I met with Linan Grease at um, a coffee shop over on the east side. And um, Linan told me this list of people that I should meet with. And John Knifik's name is like the first one that I wrote down. Uh, There it is. Yep. John Knifik at Decision Desk. Charlie Stack at Flash Starts. Jennifer Noondorfer. I don't know who Regbinder was. Remesh, Remesh, Streamlink, Dan Gilbert at Bizdom, Thinkbox from Case, and then some other things that are illegible. But John Knifik was at the top of my list and he showed up at the end of the day. And I almost missed my flight because we started talking and went over to, um, I think it's called like Albatross over on Case Western's campus, bonded over liking the same kinds of Manhattan cocktail with the Luxardo cherries. And it was at the time it was bullet rye because bourbon was on its rise. So I just thought he was so smart, so kind. And I was so impressed that he started his first company when he was 21 in college. And I just was like, this is the kind of guy that he's not, you know, he was at the time he wasn't the kind of guy that, you know, I would have gone to I don't know. He doesn't do sports bars. Like now he sort of does sports bars, but like we were very different in a complimentary kind of way. And I just was drawn to his 
Um, they were working in education. Decision Desk was doing admission software. I had an admissions background coming from business school. I was like, I'm a unicorn. I'm perfect for this job, John. Like, <laughs> So he gave me um, an offer three weeks later to come in and do like BDR work, prospecting sales. Um, and I was like, oh, I just got my MBA. This is sort of like a slap in the face with like, <laughs> you know, from Booth too. I was like, this is a slap in the face a little bit with the role, but I was like, fine, I'm going to sell the crap out of this thing. And I did. And we we grew and then we raised more money. Eventually I, I moved up higher and started working on more strategic deals and um, larger contracts. About 18 months or so into that was when started to learn more about student success, graduation, and retention at universities. And I thought, I think that's the next big problem that higher ed needs to tackle. I have plenty of cousins that started college and stopped out. And I was convinced that the reason that they started and stopped out is because they just weren't quite sure what their degree would mean for them in the real world. And that's mm -hmm. really hard to know unless you talk to somebody on a job because every company is different. Every role is sort of different. Every culture is different. And so that was I was like, okay, there's a way to do this. And there are safe conversations to have, which is with alumni. And then John at the time was negotiating his exit from Decision Desk and they were executing a search for a new CEO to come in because he wanted to do something else. He had been in the role for eight years. And I was like, well, would you want to come be a co-founder at Wiser? And he said, yes. Eventually we recruited Chris, who's our third co-founder, only a couple months later, I mean, we eventually, everybody was a co-founder and divided everything up equally because just wanted everybody to be on the same page when starting. And it ended up being a great team. We're still friends. We are all vacationing together next week. And I'm <laughs> thrilled to vacation with those guys and their wives. Just, it's a, it was a really good story. Yeah. So in those early days, kind of having recognized the problem, how is it that you went about working towards some kind of solution, yeah. some offering to the market. So there was this phase before I was willing to actually jump in, which was, I want to make sure that people are going to buy this. <laughs> yeah. An important um, question. Yeah. So I, you know, I phoned a friend at the University of Chicago and paid for my flight there and pitched the idea. And on the spot, they were like, yeah, we'd be in. Absolutely. And so there was a level of like catching up that needed to happen. I made wireframes white, right? In like quotes, because it was balsamic mock-ups. But we took took those to University of Chicago, Case Western. Those were ones where we had some pretty decent in-road connections out of the gate. But then I spent some of my money to buy just like Kate personal money at the time. Cause there's no, you know, it was like, you're, if you're going for it, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I saved a lot of money at decision desk knowing that I was going to probably jump out at some point. So bought a list of like 500 or so schools combed through them and was like, okay, this could be like somebody that might be able to provide some valuable advice. And I just called people until we got up to five customers. So it was the university of Chicago, case Western, Denison, Cedarville University, and then Oberlin. They were our first five customers. And four, Cedarville is the only one that's not a customer today, but the rest are still customers of Wiser. You would, in the questions ahead, it was, you know, how did you, what was this co-development process like? Well, John and I, there was another company that's in the industry that's a student success software platform. And they had initially gotten five customers and gotten a lot of feedback from the marketplace about 
how they would build the product, just listen to the customers instead of uh, presuming what they believe to be true would actually be true. So we had a summit in Chicago where a summit, (laughs) it was in um, the conference room in the admissions office at the University of Chicago, major thank you to the University of Chicago and to Jim Nondorf in particular um, there, who was a big help throughout all of this. But he and then um, Meredith Dahl, who was the head of the Career Center, they're offered to host the summit and everybody came and Chris at the time had gotten us an MVP, which the MVP was like a phone, <laughs> a phone <laughs> calling feature, which I was like, this is, this is a total game changer. This is it. We're going to be huge. <laughs> like a <little laughs> tiny feature, which is so funny in hindsight. Cause like every milestone, I mean, you're just in the, like in the trenches all the time and every little yeah. thing, like I, I was the one that was always really good at celebrating. And, you know, the guys would absolutely join in, but they'd be like, that's not that big of a deal. I'm like, you realize that it's not going to be that big of a deal until we sign the paperwork to exit it someday. If you keep up like this, like, this sort yeah. of energy. It's so, important to celebrate the, yeah, the wins along the way. Yeah, I'm a big celebrator. You know, what's funny is that because we exited in COVID, when you, when you sign over the company digitally, it was like our lawyers came together and yeah. <laughs> there was this, the counsel from the company, it was like, I certify this transaction. And I would said, <laughs> I certify this transaction. And like a, a big loser, I was like, woo. <laughs> <laughs> um, I drank champagne that day. And then I had lunch at Buffalo Wild Wings. I have no idea why I'm publicly confessing this, but I just like, want, <laughs> like, like to know that like COVID times, this is, what a weird time to exit, but. What a strange time. <laughs> <laughs> making up for it in Napa. Uh, we didn't even see each other in person that day. I didn't even see my co-founders. That's wild. So, at, you know, at my own company, I, I think a lot about the co-development approach, um, mm-hmm. focusing early on on a high number, uh, a small number rather, of, of highly relevant users up front yeah. to kind of address their specific pain points and, and get that feedback yep. and, and build to what is ultimately that like generally extensible line to, of the rest of the market, and I, yeah. I found it's it is a pretty powerful uh, approach in the early days for for startups. I agree. I think an important bullet point there, though, is those early customers are going to get used to a level of service that is not necessarily scalable. Mm. So we, oh gosh, ran around for a very long time doing everything for our customers, like uploading lists. Even though, like, you know, we would try and teach them how to upload the list, they would, you know, send the list back to our customer success team and we would do it for them because, you know, we wanted to have this high level of service. So, you know, as you scale, it can sort of, there's almost this, the team would never let me go in front of customers because I'm too nice and we would have never made any money. I would have given it all away for free. (laughs) But there was like this level of just like do it for them that you can't do in the long run because it's just not financially sustainable. So that's my only caution. Love the approach out of the gate. We learned a ton from our customers and they are those core five, I think, and the foundation of who we eventually became. So over the arc of Wiser's life, we eventually, so we ended primarily as um, an admissions community building tool. So we were building community community amongst current students and alumni for networking opportunities. But when just ahead of COVID actually, there was this whole code of ethics change related to recruitment at universities where a school couldn't recruit a kid away once they'd enrolled and like compete for them 
mm. on a financial basis. And so now that's no longer in place. And so my argument ahead of COVID was coming out saying like, okay, well, you've spent all this money recruiting students. Why would you ever stop communicating with them? Historically, what would happen is the admissions office would say, it's May 1st, you've committed to where you're going to school. And school starts in August or September. And in the summer, you get some emails, but you don't really get to know your classmates unless you're on Facebook. And now it's like moving into Snap and Discord is the new one that I find Mm. fascinating that it's sort of like, to me, it's like AOL instant messenger. Yeah. Pseudo anonymous chat rooms. Like you realize that we did this already. (laughs) Cool (laughs) that you've got a new thing, but been there and I'm keeping my side part. You don't understand that joke. There's a whole lot of, yeah, no, the Gen Z (laughs) is trying to take away the side part from the millennials. And I identify, I mean, I'm absolutely a millennial. I tried the mid part yesterday and I can't do it Hmm. anyway. Over the summer, stay in touch with students as they show up on campus. This is the time when they're most excited. Um, There's something called Summer Melt, which is kids that say that they're going to enroll in college eventually don't enroll for some reason or another. And the theory of the case for us coming in was that we could reduce that drop-off rate, that Summer Melt number. And we did by 20% year over year with the University of Chicago. Now, asterisks, right? They don't have a retention problem. That's not a problem they were necessarily trying to solve. But it was a nice byproduct, and it was something that we opportunistically brought to market and ended up getting like five or six more customers. And this was um, kind of bridge between admissions and orientation. But then, you know, the cruise ship is docked outside of, I forget where it was, (laughs) stationed with these people with this mysterious illness. And then fast forward to February, I think um, I have the email somewhere, February or early March, Stanford and University of Washington were the first two universities to send kids home, close their campuses for the rest of semester. And I was like, man, this is the busy time for recruitment. How are they going to fill their classes? And so I sent an email to Jim Nondorf, my old boss at the University of Chicago. And I was like, hey, Jim, to the networking, like you'd be good at networking. It helps. I'm like, Hey, do you like, do any of your friends need help with this recruitment online thing? I think we can help them. Cause there wasn't like, I mean, Wiser was positioned really well to do it. There wasn't exactly like software to do online recruitment. It's sort of like wait around until there's an opportunity and take advantage of not take advantage of in it in a bad way, but like seize the moment. Right. Right. Um, And so we ended up getting like 20 new customers in March. It was insane. We quadrupled. And then, oh, I guess a year later from the start of COVID till not even a year, 11 months after the start of COVID, uh, we were acquired by EAB and had added like, I don't know, 50 or so customers. It was nuts. And at the time that we were growing, it was, there were six people at the company and Anna Masika, um, another one of your fellow Venture for America members. She just was like, all right, rolled up her sleeves and her and John Knifik launched, I think 20 customers. Corey Pender and I were selling. Chris Ciccarello, our CTO, was the only um, engineer at the time. And Grace Fry, another VFAer, was still at the company. And she was just like, everybody was just doing whatever it took to be successful. And it was a total team effort. And I literally, I just got goosebumps thinking about it. (laughs) Like it was nuts. And it was also really nice because, wow, what a stressful time in the world. I was so grateful to be on the opposite, you know, like on the good side of busy in COVID. 
with work. I don't know how I would have done without that. I wish I had something more than like, you know, I got lucky because I always hate that. But it was like smart luck. To be yeah, able well, to, there's a, to have yeah. the, the the product and software yeah, and, to be able and to have laid all the to solve the problem. And it was I because I had planned all the events that when I was at the University of Chicago, I'd planned the events that they had to move online and that whole spring programming that happens to recruit and yield kids. I knew exactly what it was because I spent five years of my life planning it. And our clients are awesome today. We work with. Well, it's going to grow a lot more with EAB. And honestly, I'm a little bit distanced from um, Wiser still today. The product, I sit on like an advisory committee for it at EAB related to the strategy, but I, I moved into a different seat where now I do strategic relationships with external partners who can help us to identify more college-bound first-time freshmen and then people that are seeking to re-enroll in college because it's really hard to find people now that Test, like testing is optional when you apply to college. Historically, universities just purchase names from the ACT or SAT, and that's how they identify kids to recruit. And that's kind of gone because fewer people are taking the test. So I'm trying to solve that. It's very much a startup again. Yeah, that, that, is, a, that is a pretty foundational shift in the It's massive. One of the more like macro level things that I, would, I really wanted to get your perspective on was just the overall like affinity towards innovation in the in the education space cuz you know at a high level taking a step back i feel like we call out often healthcare and education as two of these places where you know the costs rise kind of exponentially over time and they've been kind of two of the areas at an industry level where you know we don't see necessarily the consumer technology adoption that that we see in in kind of the rest of our our lives and uh, i'm curious you know having grown and built this company and, and now being on the, the flip side of it, where does innovation in, in the education space come from, from a technology perspective? Historically, I think it was out of necessity. And I think that COVID accelerated a lot of the necessity. Uh, it was like five-year plans coming forward. Now, I think that more folks, so most people that work in higher education, a lot of them were like me, right? You came straight out of undergrad and you go work for the school that you were at. So you don't really have this like consumer or corporate experience of what (laughs) some of like really awesome pieces of technology that you get to interact with at at a corporation versus a higher education institution. You don't know how good it could be. So there hasn't historically been a whole lot of comfort in unplugging or plugging in new products and unplugging them. And I think that's probably because the way the success that success is measured in higher education is on an annual basis. So, you know, it's like related to the academic year, whereas business, it's, you know, corporations, it's a quarterly metric. And yeah, you have your fiscal year, but there's more, you know, shorter term measures of urgency, I suppose. But so now, I mean, my, my neighbor is the She's a second grade teacher and she's the technology coordinator for K to three, I think, in um, the school district that I live in. And even she, like now, they're testing more new software this year in her classroom so that in the next year, um, they can start to bring in more VRE type things into the classroom. She's got this new tech board. I'm not as familiar with K-12, but I will say that I have been really impressed with education in this last year 
with all the curveballs that were thrown to them, right? So in addition to having to move everything online, fundamentally changing the way that you shape your class, select students and how they apply, like getting rid of test scores as a requirement is a big deal. Most schools, it's not like a, a hard cutoff, but it's like a major factor in kind of standardizing, you know, normalizing a score across a community. Now, obviously, it's, there's a whole lot of debate on like how good standardized tests are or aren't, but right, it right. is a factor that helps you get context when you've never been to Lima, Ohio. <laughs> like, how do you know that the kid there that is acing all of their AP exams or, you know, getting an A in AP physics, their A is the same as the kid getting an A in AP physics in Cleveland. It's really hard unless there's some sort of standard because a teacher could let you retake tests and you could get an A. So how do you know they're going to be successful? So fundamentally changing the way that you make business decisions in, in addition to how you are operating. And I think everybody kind of went through that. Well, maybe not everybody because we didn't, we did, Wiser didn't have to change. We had moved remote in January mm-hmm. because we were just want to try it out. So our it was like business as usual for us. So I can't imagine outside of like the emotional trauma of COVID, <laughs> which is a big thing for, and it's still happening. Just big shifts all around. So I applaud higher ed. I think our clients did a phenomenal job and they're still tweaking what we built today. I think trying to figure out what that looks like in the long run. Most of our clients are planning to use Wiser forever to give more opportunity to kids who can't necessarily afford to fly to a university to go visit it during the decision to enroll or not. I think that kind of stuff's cool. I, I was impressed with higher ed. I don't know how healthcare did. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think I think kind of across the board, we've, like you said, the, the five-year plans have been, we, five years passed in the last year and yeah, <laughs> we're just kind of where we thought we were going. A lot of the conversations I had were, you know, we had, we've been thinking about doing this for so long, but we weren't planning to get there for another three to five years. And I was like, wow, you know, when I, there's the, how I built this podcast, when everybody just, I always thought it was so cliche, the getting lucky. Honestly, it's sort of like sticking around until your moment happens. And I, that's what kind of happened to us. Right place, right time, knowing how to pivot, being ready to pivot, willing to risk it. I think a lot of of entrepreneurship is is staying alive long enough to continue to like be able to ask questions and yeah <laughs> and and find that opportunity. Yeah, I get asked by a lot of new entrepreneurs. It's like, how do you know when your idea is going to work or not? And I'm like, well, let me tell you about my <laughs> wiser. I mean, like, what we ended up doing is not what we started doing, and we do have actually not entirely what we said. Like, ten percent of what we started doing was what we yeah. ended up doing. How do you relinquish the things that you set out to do that you are no longer doing? Like the process of, of letting those things go in pursuit of the new opportunity. Like how do you, how do you manage those pivots? It's so hard to remain disciplined. And when things were working, you know, kind of like, okay. Um, what John, Chris and I did as a co-founding group, we always went back through all of our um, expenses and just made sure to cut everything that we like could cut all the time, all of the like little stuff, SaaS subscriptions, give yourself enough runway and space. So make sure you have money. The second thing that we would always do is make sure that we were tracking core business metrics. And we learned this later on. So we had like, there was a, a time period where I totally overspent 
had to reduce headcount and burn. It was just like the worst time um, of my life as a professional. I don't want to ever do that again. But so focusing on the core metrics of what is going to make your business successful, what are healthy metrics, so revenue per headcount, and then making sure that you're documenting what tests tests you're going to run and that you have a timeline for referencing back. And when you're doing that, it makes it a lot easier to be objective about calling, you know, calling a pivot or making a business change. That's like super abstracted. Yeah. How do you know you're measuring the right things? I guess you don't. I mean, like you're the closest to your business. You got to make your best, best judgment. I think that's the, you know, a really big mistake that people make is leaning too heavily on investors. And, and I think too, like the overconfidence of investors coming in to, they're not operating the business on a day-to-day basis. They're not seeing the numbers like you're seeing the numbers. They're not the ones waking up in the middle of the night. So um, when you fly in and give advice and then, you know, say, if you don't do it, you're not going to like be successful. It's just like, it actually like a lot of angel investors and in conversations would say stuff like that. And I'm like, cool, well, this isn't going to be a good fit. I'm going to move on to the next person. The best kinds of investors that I had were actually all like on my, my, my board of advisors, Carrie Jaros, phenomenal leader. She's so smart. She has a framework for everything. And she never, ever told me what to do. She gave me frameworks and asked me to apply those frameworks versus saying, versus assuming that she knew more about the education landscape or how to operate the startup that I was in charge of. And that is like, she was great. Yeah. Systems thinking is extensible. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Those frameworks. Do you, do you you remember what some of those frameworks were? I'm just curious. Oh my gosh. Um, (laughs) Honestly, the one that stands out was like the take the exit or not take the exit because that was fresh in mind because it was a big, I mean, I literally had like a stack of term sheets for series A that like it would have been super fun to run that company. (laughs) Some really great new investors that I was excited to work with. And then just kind of, I'm only 34. So being able to, have an exit at 34. There's a lot of time left in my career to go out and do something else. Um, I am planning to stay at EAB. I'm very excited about it. And and what we're going to do there and how we're going to grow it with our PE backers. I know it sounds like a commercial, but like genuinely the people there are so nice. They're as nice as they were. Like I thought they, I thought maybe it was like fake nice because they wanted to buy our company, but they're really actually nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the... I mean, it was like just straight up net present value calculations. It's like, what do you think you can exit for in the future versus, you know, what are you going to do today? It's important for a founder to do that, to separate yourself from the emotional side of like, well, you know, it's a personal decision, honestly. Like if you wanted to like swing for it and go for it and take the risk, like, I don't know, money doesn't have to always be the end all be all for deciding to run a company. I mean, if you're taking it, so it's like, I can flip back and forth all the time and see both sides. But, you know, I, as CEO, I had a fiduciary responsibility to my shareholders and the exit made sense financially for everybody. Could we have gone and grown on our own? Probably, but there's a lot of room for error. I don't know. I wish I had a crystal ball. Because <laughs> yeah. I start companies all the time. <laughs> right. I, I would as well with the crystal ball. Yeah. <laughs> With the acquisition to EAB, is 
is there a maintenance of Wiser's brand and, and culture or is there an assimilation process that is transpiring for, you know, the kind of experience that consumers get working with Wiser? And I'm just curious that kind of the transition as well. At the time of acquisition, Wiser was 20 people and we fold in, into a company of 1500 people. <laughs> yeah. For, so that for context and I think we maybe had around 100 or so customers and EAB overall has 2,200 customers. So that's just like the the context for the scale. Wiser's brand is staying around. Wiser is a product that is offered in Enroll 360, which is um, this like full solution for admissions recruitment. So it's, that includes digital communications, print communications, virtual campus tours, community building, and then identification of students to recruit. So it like everything that you could possibly need to run an enrollment office, and including financial aid as well, EAB does or can do for universities. The kind of long-term vision for how Wiser, the product, is maintained throughout the company, there are a lot of areas that we can go. And I think EAB sees that in general, which is, it's kind of fun to sit on the kind of advisory committee for Wiser. There are lots of ideas. There's no shortage of ideas for how we will grow and expand the product. It's more of like, what's the right thing right now? How do we honor the relationships that we have with our existing clients and make sure that their experience is better? Because EAB had also, so in the 18, we were the last of four acquisitions that happened over 18 months. So there's like this whole a lot of people figuring out what it's like to work at a large scale company for the first time startups. There's one company that was bigger, uh, but still it's like everybody's rem- Most of the acquired people are remote. We have some larger scale offices on the East coast in Richmond and DC, which I look forward to meeting them. Um, I've yeah. never met anybody from EAB in real life. <laughs> it's so nuts. I, and um, it's wild. <laughs> yeah. We're going back to in-person offices um, a hybrid work experience starting mid-September. So I think I'll go out to D.C. and Richmond and meet some people, and hopefully some of them will come out to Cleveland. I, uh, My boss's boss is coming, and I've like given him a whole list of what we're going to do when we come oh, here. Oh, the agenda. Super hyped nice. about Cleveland. Also, I just tried <laughs> Il Rion on uh, uh, Friday. Wow. Fantastic. Changing. I take back my tweet about Edison's pizza. <laughs> Orion <laughs> is like the the greatest pizza I've ever had in my life. It it is my personal favorite here as well. Well, we're we're working our way towards towards the the hidden gems. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, you know shoot. one thing that yeah. <laughs> is sneak peek, sneak peek. You'll have to think of yeah. a different one. But um, no, one of the things that we we do here is we're we're trying to paint a collective collage, not necessarily of people's favorite things in Cleveland, but of things that other people may not know about. So this could be maybe the entirety of your agenda for your <laughs> for your boss's boss coming in. But what are what are some of those things for you? So my family spends it's not Cleveland proper. I don't know if this is fair, but there's a small town. Okay. There's a small town called Fairport Harbor, which is just north of Painesville. So it's maybe like 30 minutes east of the city. Great public beach. My family owns an ice cream shop there now. Um it didn't have like an ice cream shop by these like two lighthouses right on the water, but I think that is a total hidden gem. There's sailing lessons. You can rent paddle boards. It's beautiful. It's right around the corner from Headlands Beach. I love the vibe. Immediately when I go in town, I'm relaxed. So I think that's probably my top favorite. In Cleveland proper, 
I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, Gordon Square, there's also this place called All Saints, the whole Gordon Square area. I think there's, it's because it's so residential. There's a ton of really, really great stuff over there that I just haven't um, explored yet, but awesome experience at Il Rion and All Saints. Yeah, we can. Oh, we'll plug El Rion in. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, okay, at the Cleveland Guardian Stadium, the. Oh, yes, the Cleveland Guardians. Right now. Field. Yeah, the Guardians. It's weird ball. hearing that. I haven't heard that much yet. Yeah. Well, look at me. Using it. Um, yeah, I love going to the game and in the right field, there's this, the, the bar district. I think that's probably another one of my experiences that I like here. I'm in Lakewood. Is Lakewood even a gem? Maybe, you know, it, some people may not know about it. Yeah. No, I think, <laughs> but, I think you know, it depends, depends if we're talking to people coming to Cleveland yeah. or living in Cleveland and Fairport's totally underrated. It feels like you've left, like you're in some like beach town or whatever. And you are, I guess, but it's in Ohio. Um, yeah. I love the vibe. It's so chill. I, I, I do love that. That's why like, it's very easy to have a transportation to another vibe very quickly from, from anywhere in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. We'll add it, uh, we'll add it to the list here. Yeah. Well, Kate, I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story. I'm very excited that you get to go to Napa and, and celebrate and, and take that time. But uh, thank you for, for coming on. Thank you for having me. And thanks for telling all the stories in Ohio. It's been a fun, a fun journey so far. If people have anything they want to follow up with you about, where is the, the best place for them to reach you, Kate? <sighs> Probably message me on LinkedIn. Easiest spot. Perfect. Or if they already have my email, they can email me or text me, call me, beat me, whatever. If they need to reach you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you got I got it. you. you. <laughs> That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.